Hey, good morning, church. So good to be with you today. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're in a new series in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be in this series for 15 weeks. I think this is week four. If you're a guest, it's your first time here, and you just want to hear kind of what the teaching series is right now, I encourage you to, you can jump on our podcast, on our website. You may want to go back to August 12th and listen to the first sermon I did in the Gospel of Mark, because I've called this series Refocus, because as I read Mark, I think one of the best ways to read Mark is that there are two blind men who are healed right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and those two blind men are healed uh, in a way to let the church know, hey, there is a time in your life when you may be touched by God or you experience encounter with God and you are partially able to see, but God's desire for you is not just to partially be able to see, it's for full vision. And the gospel of Mark is opening us up to Jesus in a way so we can see Jesus more fully, his heart more fully, his mind more fully, so that we can, we can live with God more fully. Um, in Mark chapter 1, it's, it's almost like a trailer to a movie, the way Mark 1 goes. I don't know how you are with trailers. Sometimes you watch a trailer and like the four scenes that are shown in the trailer are the four best scenes in the movie. That's it. Whenever my family goes uh, to the movies and, and they're showing all the trailers beforehand, we, after each one, we give a thumbs up, we give a thumbs down, a thumb maybe, like, you know, if it gets, you know, Netflix maybe, you know, thumbs down, probably not, you know, uh, thumbs up. We really like that. We're intrigued by it. Mark 1 is almost like a trailer. All of Mark 1 is, the, the way you could read it is, it's like Mark's giving you little stories of Jesus, and it's almost like Mark is saying, hey, here's what happened to Jesus, and oh, by the way, this is going to happen throughout the rest of this gospel. Hey, Jesus drove out this demon, and just so you know, there are going to be a few more of these stories that come up. The, Jesus did, Jesus healed, and he's going to heal some more. Jesus healed somebody of leprosy and healed someone of a social disease, and he's going to do more of that throughout the rest of the gospel. Jesus teaches, and he's going to teach throughout the rest of the gospel. So there's a reason why it's going to take me seven weeks to get out of just Mark chapter 1 trying to get us to Thanksgiving to make it through Mark 1 through 10. It's like Mark 1, he's giving you little snippets. And this morning, what I want you to see is a good chunk of Mark chapter 1 all happens in one 24-hour period with Jesus. So you can see, it's like a day in the life of Jesus. If you go to this first slide, here's just a few verses and you can read them. Beginning in verse 21, it says this, they went to Capernaum. And as soon as that story's over in verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, then the next story happens. Verse 32, that evening right after sunset, this happened. And then verse 35, very early the next morning. So, so a good bit of Mark is he's saying, hey, here's a day in the life of Jesus. He drove out demons, healed diseases, teaches in the synagogue. He's doing all this. And then next week, I want to come back and talk about this more. He wakes up early in the morning to pray. He finishes a long day of ministry. He's drained. I'm sure an angel's leaning over to God like, should we give him some Advil, some Tylenol? It's been a long day for him. Some melatonin so he can sleep well tonight. And then early the next morning, Jesus is up praying to God. It's a day in the life of Jesus. I want to walk you through it this morning. Uh, and to do that, last week I talked about the first call story in verse 16 through 20. Jesus calls disciples. And this is something he does multiple times throughout the gospel. It's something Jesus still does today. And one of the reasons Jesus does this 
It's because Jesus could do anything Jesus wants to do all by himself. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. But the way God has chosen to work since Genesis chapter 1 is to partner with humanity, is to ask you to come and be with God. Because one of God's best ways, and one of the ways God loves to spread his goodness is to work through flesh to do it. It's a touchdown in the life of someone. So I think there are times where we're praying to God, God, I got this coworker, and God, will you help them and bless them? And God may be looking at you saying, I, I want to, and I desire to, and I want to do it through you. I want you to be that vessel this week. So one of the first stories in Jesus' public ministry is he calls disciples, and I want you to notice the settings that happen in Mark chapter 1. The setting of Jesus calling those disciples is the synagogue. I mean, at the Sea of Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he calls the first disciples. He's walking along the sea, comes upon some fishermen, and he calls them. This is good news for you today. That Jesus didn't go to seminary, or he didn't go to try to find professionals in the Bible to call the first disciples. He went and he found people who had invested their lives in commercial fishing. So wherever you are in life, Jesus can come and call you right where you are too and use you for his glory. It's the Sea of Galilee. And this is a... It's like a new teaching. One of the new teachings that Jesus brought is he is taking the kingdom of God outside of like quote unquote religious space, outside of temple and synagogue. He's going to go and take kingdom life and the work and activity of God out into the world. It's one of the best lessons the church can still learn today, right? God taught me this lesson. I was 25 I was preaching in Houston. I shared this story a few years ago, and I go back to this story quite a bit as a, as a pivotal moment in my life of ministry and my life with God. Because I was preaching at this church, and we were surrounded by a few low-income apartment complexes in Houston. It was a church that had been around for 50-something years. A long time ago, they had left the city, and they were moving out to the burbs, and the suburbs went way past where they are. So they were kind of in an identity crisis for a while. It was a church that had people 35 and under and 55 and over. They were missing a generation. Because there was a generation of people raising their kids in this neighborhood that was in, in transition. And a lot of those people said, we love the vision of the church, but we can't raise our kids in this. And they, we were missing a whole generation of them. So we had a lot of people under the age of 35 and a lot more people over the age of 55 who still had a lot of energy and excitement about the kingdom of God. And we threw a party every year for our neighborhood. We invited people. We handed out flyers. We went and knocked doors and invited people to come to a barbecue. We were going to have free food, free games, free drinks, free, free entertainment. Bring the family. And, and we did this every year and hardly anybody would come. I'm sure most of you have been a part of church activities before where you invite people and, and they just don't come. And I was sitting in an elders meeting one time and the elders felt deflated and what should we do? Should we even do this again? And I just said, hey, how about next year? How about here in a few months when we throw this party again? How about we not invite people to come to us? Let's go to them. Why don't we go to an apartment complex, go in the middle of a courtyard and throw a barbecue and see what happens? And the elders looked at me and they said, I guess we'll give it a shot. Sounds like something Jesus may do. And so I went across the street and I met with the manager and I sat down with this woman and I said, ma'am, here's what we would like to do as a church. We, for one, we want to apologize that you're our neighbors and we, I don't even know your name. I don't even, I don't even know pe names of people who live here. And can we come over here in a few weeks? We'd like to bring some, just roll in a bunch of grills and cook hot dogs and hamburgers and have some sodas and get to know our neighbors. And I was expecting some pushback. I thought she would come back with, what, is, what, are, your, what are your motives? What's your agenda? Are you going to be handing out tracts? What's going to happen? And, I just, and, and there was none of that. Her response was, I think it's a great idea. In fact, I'll provide the sodas for you. And she said this. 
She said, my only request is that from Saturday night to Sunday night is the heaviest drinking night for our apartment complex. So could you come any other time during the week? Well, I was preaching at a church kind of like ours, man. We had people coming from a 50-mile radius in the church on Sunday mornings, and Sundays were a big day for us. And, and I said, ma'am, I hear what you're saying, but if you're okay with it, we're going to go ahead and come on a Sunday, and we'll just trust our people to make wise decisions if some cold beverages are tossed in front of their face. And I remember thinking, I think I even told her, now, if one of our elders puts down five or six or seven, we're going to pull him aside and have a little conversation about moderation, all right? But I remember we, we laid this in front of the church. We said, hey, this year we're not, we're not, hosting, we're not hosting this barbecue at our church. We're going, we're going to go to the apartments. And, and we made two rules. Rule number one uh, is if you want to go to this event and hang out with church people, we would much rather you go to Chili's or Denny's or IHOP. This is not an event for you to come and hang out with church people. And number two is if you bring a lawn chair to sit in, you have to bring another lawn chair for a neighbor. So if you bring one for you, you got to bring another one for a neighbor. Those are only two rules. So about 4.30 on this Sunday afternoon, the, the barbecue grills were already in the courtyard. We're already grilling some hot dogs and hamburgers. And then our people from our church, who was mostly made up of older white people, began to walk into this apartment complex that was 98% non-white and under the age of 45. And I guarantee they've never seen so many gray-haired white people in their entire lives. <laughs> and the, the image I used to describe what it was like, it was like the field of dreams. If you've ever seen the movie, like every little entryway into this courtyard, there were just gray-headed white people coming from all angles, carrying lawn chairs and just taking over this place. And, and, but our question was, man, we're grilling stuff, but is anything going to happen? And then we saw people like starting to peek out their blinds, like what is going on out there? And then a few minutes later, they open up their doors and crack their doors and you could just see people kind of peeking out. And then a few minutes later, people walked out to their porches and just began to look around like what is going on? And then within about 30 minutes, the only way I can describe it is like, it's like the kingdom of God fell. There were hundreds of people gathered all around this courtyard people connecting, learning names, hearing stories, sharing stories. It was like an Acts 2 moment where there were, there were a few little pockets of people where some people could only speak Spanish. It's somehow they're connecting with people who could only speak English. And that whole neighborhood began to change. Our encounter with our neighbors began to change from that because the next Sunday when we saw that woman pushing that buggy with laundry to go do laundry for her family, she was no longer just that woman pushing the buggy. We knew her name. We knew the names of her kids. We started getting invited to birthday parties, to hospitals, to pray over people. And this happened 13 years ago. And back in January, I ran into people who are still at that church and they came up to me and they said, hey, you remember that, remember that barbecue we, we threw? We still do that today where we go over to them, one of the best lessons we learn from that is often the church is at its best when we give up home field advantage. The first encounter Jesus has in public ministry in Mark 1 is not in the synagogue or temple. It's at the Sea of Galilee. It's going outside of the synagogue. The church is still at its best when we leave the facility, the church facility, and we go and we, we play out kingdom life out in the world and we see what God is up to. So Jesus takes kingdom life outside of the synagogue, goes to the Sea of Galilee. But the very next story is this in Mark chapter uh, 1 and verse 22. 
Uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 21. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath day came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. So the first story in public ministry is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going outside religious space. Second story is he's right back in the synagogue. Because just because the movement of God is going outside of the synagogue does not mean God has given up on the synagogue. Just because today God is doing amazing things and he's asking the church to join him outside of the church facility doesn't mean that God is not still doing something inside of it. The first story, he's at the Sea of Galilee. Second story, he's at the synagogue. And there at the synagogue, in verse 122, it says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The synagogue was a special place for Jews. It was a place for, it was a religious space. It was also a social space. It was for fellowship. It was for education. They had schools there. It was like epicenter of so much of Jewish life. And there were synagogue activities that there were worship services like what we're having right here in synagogue. I don't think they did four-part harmony, but they would often open their, a lot of their synagogue activities. They would, have, they would sing the psalms or chant the psalms. They would pray prayers. There would be confession. And the last thing they would do is there would be teaching. So Jesus is in this synagogue, and he begins to teach. And people are amazed that he has authority. And I don't think this is to demean all the teachers of the law. Like these people who've been standing up, like they they have not been doing a good job. The job for the teachers of the law was much like attorneys today. What they wanted to do is they wanted to honor the law, make sure people were obeying the law, helping people interpret the law, wanting accuracy when it came to the law. And so they're doing all of this, but I think it's very possible to happen today what happened to many of the teachers of the law is they got so fixated on trying to get the law right that they weren't chasing after the heart of God. That It's possible for you to know your Bible, study your Bible, go after your Bible every single day, but not to have a heart or a mind that's going after that of God. If knowledge isn't followed and surrounded by transformation and sanctification, it doesn't make us into the well-rounded people of God that he desires for us to be. So they notice some authority in Jesus. And then something crazy happens. That in worship, in synagogue, Jesus is teaching, which meant this would have been toward the end. There's a person there among them who goes crazy, demon-possessed. The presence of evil is on this person, and Jesus drives out this demon. It goes like this in verse 23. Jesus, then a man, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, Be quiet. He said it sternly. You come out of the man. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. If this happened today, In our worship service, what would you do? Some of you, your response is, I'd pull up my phone and film it. I'm sure I'd get a lot of hits on that. All right, put it on social media. Some of you would, you would be freaked out. You wouldn't know what to do. Some of you would leave the church and never come back to this church. What would you do? Let me me maybe ask this. Do you believe in demon possession? Do you have to believe in demon possession to understand this story because this is not the only story in the gospel of Mark or in the gospels where Jesus drives out demons. So for me, how do I preach this? How do I try to teach this in a way that dispenses truth into your life and some form of inspiration in your life? 
Because it's hard, I think, for a lot of churches in America, especially like churches of Christ, our tribe, it's hard for us to like wrap our minds around demon possession. And I think sometimes there are times we don't, we don't believe something because we just don't want to believe it. Like, I don't want to believe that because if I believe it, I'm going to think about it. And if I think about it, I'm going to have bad dreams. It's like, I just don't want to believe that's true. But for Christians who are meeting in places in Africa and some parts of Asia and some parts of South America, the conversation about demon possession is a no-brainer for them. Even the conservative people in those places. They don't just believe in demonic forces. They have experienced and they have seen with their own eyes demonic forces at work. So, so what, do we do with, what do we do with a story like this? How do we process it? What do we make of it? I, I, want, I want to encourage you to just to leave room in your theology, how you process God in the church. Just to leave room for there to be things that could happen that are outside of your understanding or comprehension. That there's mystery in what we are called into. That there are things happening, maybe right here in this room, that we cannot see. Uh, and if you're, it's hard for you right now to like make a jump to start talking about or thinking about being possessed by demons, you can, surely you can get to a place where you acknowledge that there are things that are opposed to the will of God in our own lives and in this room. Things that are more aligned with evil than they are with the things of God. Now, let, let, me, let me address this just real quick because uh, if you've read the Gospels, and especially if you've been reading the Bible, and maybe you're a new believer, so you're reading, and there are just a lot of questions that are there. Uh, there are multiple times when you read about demons, Jesus driving demons out, that the word epilepsy or some form of seizure comes up in those stories. And if you don't really have a knowledge of the Bible or knowledge of the heart of God, sometimes you can make a correlation, and some people have tried that seizures or epilepsy could be a form of demon possession. And, and the Bible doesn't make that correlation. And there's some of you who yourself, or you have loved ones who suffer from those things, and it doesn't mean anyone's demon possessed. Sometimes we can make a jump to mental illness, that every form of mental illness is a form of demon possession. And, and I, wanna, I want us to try to think beyond that. Now, with that said, we know that where there are seizures or forms of mental illness, and the list could go on, where there are things that where, where something is not whole in the presence of God, God's desire is for people to be made whole. It's his desire from head to toe for someone to be in their right mind and, and for their bodies to function right. It's God's desire for them. So whatever is opposed to the will of God as a church, we've got to continue to pray against it, to rebuke it, because all we know to do is to pray in accordance to how Jesus taught us to pray, and that is for God's full kingdom to come and manifest itself right here. Now, here's something about demons, though. In the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. It's like the demons know who Jesus is at a, at a faster rate than anyone else knows who Jesus is. In Mark chapter 3, if you flip over just a couple of pages, Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and all these other places and these regions. It says, because, the crowd, uh, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. All right, Jesus was like some of you. All right, there are times where the crowds are pressing. Maybe he suffered a little bit from claustrophobia. All right. 
he, he wants to get away from him. Look at this. For he had healed many, so that those who had diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. James chapter 2 verse 19 says this. You believe that there is one God, great. Good for you. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. But here's the thing about demons. The demons could confess that Jesus was God. But they remained opposed to his reign. Peter makes the confession that Jesus is Messiah. Yet Peter remained ignorant of Jesus' reign. And we come in a room this morning where Kip and the praise team led us in some, I mean, some pretty outrageous, like bold songs. And we can make confessions and still remain opposed or remain ignorant. It's upon us that whatever confession we make about Jesus, we're going to follow it up and try to live into whatever confession we make. Now, here's the thing, and this is where it gets crazy. In almost every story of demons and unclean spirits in the presence of Jesus, all right, almost every story you have in the Gospels, it's in some kind of worship service where the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus is hot that makes the demons come out. That it's not like Jesus goes on this mission to try to find the presence of evil. Like, hey, we need to go into a dark alley. Let's go find where they are. Or we need to go into, where, where are the strip clubs? Because surely they're there. And it's not like Jesus is going out to try to find them. It's in the heat of a worship service where the declar, declar, uh, uh, declaring authority, the power of Jesus is present, that demons start going crazy. Demons start barking. Because it's like they don't know what else to do. When I talk to some of my charismatic friends about things like this, some of my charismatic friends whose uh, churches and experiences with the Holy Spirit and in the spiritual realm are far greater than our tribe and our group, well, many of them say is that they have not had many encounters with demonic forces, but the ones they have, it's almost always been in the context of an intense prayer night or prayer time or a worship service where the church and the people of God are gathered together and they are surrendering and crying out to God for the work of God and asking God for his wonders to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And that's when they have experienced demonic forces. There's something about worship where people come together focused on Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, that the demons can't stay in that presence anymore. It's like there's something about where the authoritative voice and, and, and call of God is fully present that it sniffs the demons out. Or to choose another metaphor, it's almost like in those moments when worship is hot and worship is thick and worship is totally focused on God, begging for something that it smokes the evil out. That it can't live anymore. So what do you do with something like that? Because I hope there's at least one person right now saying, Josh, you're kind of making me a little uncomfortable. I'm, I'm starting to say, because are you saying that if we focus on Jesus and have more powerful worship services and we come in this room together and we're surrendering with greater passion and asking God for great things, that demonic forces are going to break out? And my response is maybe. <laughs> but what I really want you to hear me say 
is that when the church comes together, not as complacent people, but crying out to God for the work of God, evil doesn't remain anymore. Evil's got to flee. So where Jesus is lifted up, it's not just a it's not just about lifting up the name of Jesus. It's lifting up the name of Jesus. And when the name of Jesus is lifted up, the, the, the enemy and evil has to be taken seriously too. So the worship wars in the Gospels aren't like worship wars that many of us may have experienced in churches before. Where it's old hymns versus new hymns. Or can we raise hands or can we not raise hands? Or can we clap or can we not clap? Or can we, can we sway while we sing songs or is there no swaying, all right? I mean, you've seen, you've seen things we have fought over before and we've divided over and these worship wars that there's no way that the, the presence of heaven around God is looking down upon these worship wars saying, yeah, let's, let's pick this side because they're right. It's, just, it's, it's the enemy that's looking upon moments like that saying, we've got them. We got them focused on the wrong things. The worship wars in the Gospels, it's not about that. It's about the authoritative voice of Jesus declaring truth with such greatness that the war is between the powers of God and the powers of evil. And when the powers of God meet the powers of evil, the powers of evil do not have a chance. Um, I have, a, I have a friend, he told me this past week that his wife, he, he preaches at a church. It's a, it's a church in a larger city, and his wife is at some event, and there was a young lady, a young, young woman, who just placed membership at this church. And my friend's wife asked that woman and said, why did you choose to come to our church? There are a lot of churches you could have, have chosen from. And this young woman said this, she said, I moved here and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any churches. So I did a little research, but it looked like there were a hundred churches I wanted to visit. Because especially in the South, right? We got churches everywhere. And she said, I narrowed it down to just a few. And she said, I decided that I was going to do is I was going to visit each one in whichever church mentioned the name Jesus the most. That was going to be the church I was going to make my home. That sounds a lot better than how some of us made decisions about where we were going to plug into a church. It wasn't, I mean, for her, it wasn't about the comfort. It wasn't about how she felt. It wasn't, do the restrooms have toilets that flush by themselves automatically? You know, it, which church mentions Jesus most? And she said, when I came to your church, the name of Jesus, and she kept the tally, the name of Jesus was mentioned 160 times. And she said, your church had 60 more Jesuses than second place. <laughs> And my friend said, well, it's a good thing she came when I was preaching the gospel and she didn't come a month ago when I was preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, all right? <laughs> but I would love not just for people to come here and say, man, Sycamore, that's a place where, where you're just going to hear so much about Jesus. What I want is for us to worship Jesus and to focus on Jesus in the kind of way where there is evil that is present in a heart or in this room that at some point it will say, those people are taking this so seriously, I've got to say something. I've got to do something. That you notice when Jesus talks to demons, he's not very polite when he talks to demons. Now, Mark chapter 5 is an exception. I'm going to get there down the road, all right, where, where there's legion. And Jesus actually has a conversation with legion. But usually when Jesus is talking to demons, he's not polite. It's not, hey, you know you're kind of disrupting this person's life. And I just wanted to ask if you would not be, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind just removing yourself? It's not that. Jesus is, hey, in the name of God. Get out. 
You're done. Move. And the demons couldn't fight back. It's over. I want you to leave today thinking about the authority that is in the name of Jesus and what that should mean for our prayer lives. And I want you to leave today thinking about the, how seriously we need to be taking evil in our own lives. But this story right here isn't the end of Jesus' day. He leaves that place and then, and then this happens. In Mark 1, 27, 28, the people, they were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? It's a brand new teaching, one with authority. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So people leave and people are telling all their friends about who Jesus is. His fame begins to grow. After all, you come into a place and you start driving out demons and healing diseases, your fame grows. The very next story, it says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with the fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. See, he goes in the house where this woman has fever, and he doesn't just drive the fever out. A lot of times what Jesus does when he heals diseases is he touches the person he's healing before he drives out whatever needs to be driven out. Because Jesus is relational. Jesus is making a connection. And he even asks this woman, like he helps her get up before he drives the fever out. And when he drives the fever out, she began to serve him. So one story, Jesus works a miracle and the stories of Jesus and the fame spreads and another story works a miracle and the woman begins to serve Jesus. Something very small. You don't know her name. You don't know exactly what she does. There will be times, hopefully this week, when God's gonna work a wonder in your life and he's gonna ask you to tell other people about it and there may be times when God works a wonder in your life and, and the response to that is not you telling the world. It's just, how can I serve you, Jesus? But that is, that's not where the day ends either. Then it says in 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick, the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The reason these crowds are coming to that house is not because fever left the woman. It's because Jesus drove out a demon in the synagogue. And people are thinking, if this one who is teaching has authority to drive out evil, we've got to get people into the presence of this one and let him work his wonders. I want you to hear me say today, and I hope you'll take this seriously in your life, evil is not a dance. Evil is not a wrestling match to settle into. Evil is something to be defeated. Evil is not something to manage in your own life. And I think the way demon possession works today isn't like the way some of the movies make it out to be where there's just some demonic force who just all of a sudden jumps into a human being and that person goes from good to bad in a moment. I think today the way it often works is that you make a decision for evil, a small decision, and then you continue to make that decision over and over and over again. And you try to manage it, not let it get out of control, and it slowly turns you into somebody who reflects more of darkness than the light of God. And maybe it's really hard for you to wrap your mind around today possessed by a demon. Am I possessed by a demon? Could I be? But I bet you can wrap your mind around this. How are the forces of evil trying to impact my life? And what do I need to do about it? And where do the forces of evil currently have influence on my life? 
And what do I need to do about it? My buddy Chris Seedman says this. There's no better place for someone spiritually oppressed and hurting to be than in the presence of Jesus. And there is no worse place for a demon to be than in the presence of Jesus. Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers of darkness and the authority in the heavenly realm. Our battles are not against flesh and blood, but I bet most of us every single day treat our days as if they are. Like our battles are not against flesh and blood, but we sure do make a lot of battles to be against flesh and blood. It's true with sports rivals. It's true with how we treat politics. Either you're good or bad. Either you're on the left or the right. It's true how we often treat people in our workplace. Yet, your battle is not against flesh and blood. So how do you need to take seriously the authority of the name of Jesus in your life? And I wish I could tell you that if you speak the name of Jesus over every illness and everything that is said against him, that it will immediately be made right because... We prayed in the name of Jesus for my sister to be healed, and she wasn't. Some of you prayed in the name of Jesus for things to happen, and they weren't. All I can do is to encourage us in faith to believe that God is somehow, someway working things to redemption. And all we know to do if we take Jesus seriously is to take his name seriously with all of its power and all its authority. And I hope you'll take some time today and this week in your own life to take seriously the influence of evil in your life. Because where we take Jesus seriously, we also take evil seriously. And I want to ask you just for a moment, will you bow your heads, close your eyes, open your hands where you are just to receive from God. God, I've come to this passage for weeks wrestling with you on what to say and what to speak. God, if I've said anything that does not honor your truth, your heart, your character, who you are, I pray that those words will fall to the ground and that they will not be remembered, they'll be destroyed. But God, if I've spoken anything that honors who you are, I pray that it bears great fruit this week in our lives. It will sink deep into our hearts. I pray, God, where there is evil and People today, evil that we know, God, that, that you will give people the, the boldest and courage to do something about it. We can't keep going on like this. Call us to a better place. God, may we believe in you more. Give us courage and boldness to pray like heaven and hell depends on it today. I ask us this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. If there's a need in your life, we have elders, we have some prayer leaders who will surround this room to receive you. We invite you to go to them for prayer or to bring something in front of this church. Can we stand together and let's declare this as a church?